You guys like movies, right? Everyone likes movies? All right, yeah. I love movies. And not in like the pretentious film critic kind of way, you know, where you're like, you're, you watch a movie just to see what's wrong with it, you know? I'm not like that. I'm more of a, I like them for the diversion kind of way, right? They, uh, I love that I can just kind of check out and go along for the ride, you know? Uh, most of the time I, I like it. Sometimes I'm not, but I'm, I'm generally entertained and I enjoy myself. Uh, but sometimes not so much, you know, but those times are, for me, few and far between. I just like watching movies. I don't really care what it's about. Uh, so think about your favorite movie ever. Somebody, what, what is it? No, nah, man, it's not. Huh? There are too many favorite movies ever? That's not the way that, that's, that's not the way that word works. Chariots of fire? Why? Overcoming and perseverance. I like that. So my all-time favorite movie is something called Safety Not Guaranteed. Uh, I think I have a graphic for you. You probably recognize a couple of those people. Uh, Safety Not Guaranteed. It's directed by a guy named Colin Trevorrow. Uh, it's a really obscure film, and odds are most of you have never heard of it, much less seen it. Uh, but... It's so good. I love it so much. And if I told you why I love it, it would ruin it for you. So just go watch it. Uh, so we'll go with another of my top five. You guys, I'm sure, are familiar with this one. James Cameron's Avatar. Yeah? <sighs> that movie was so good. It was, uh, it was so immersive, you know? I was genuinely depressed when I walked out of the theater into the drab gray concrete and the colorless December sky in Fort Smith, Arkansas, you know, out of all of those beautiful colors on Pandora. And it was just, I was, oh. I mean, ask my wife. I was just like, yeah, uh, it messed with me, you know, for real. Uh, you know, Arkansas is such a beautiful place, 80% of the days out of the year, but December 18th is not one of those days. <laughs> it should have come out in the summertime, maybe so. Maybe it wouldn't have hurt me so bad. But anyway, your experience in a good movie or a good story is worth mentioning. Whatever the movie or book, for that matter, may be for you, Chariots of Fire, for example, uh, you enter into the story for a brief moment of your life. You know, you... you you lose yourself, you know. You, you kind of uh, assimilate and experience the story as though you were there, right? You feel it. You don't have any control over what's happening in the story uh, or, what's, or what's going to happen, but you partake anyway. You don't really have any reservations about this inability to control the outcome while you're watching a movie, do you? You're not even really thinking about it. But again, you, you partake anyway. On some level, you just accept it as it comes to you, right? You understand that this story isn't your story. It's their story. You aren't the hero in the story, but you do identify with the hero, right? 
So you can't interject yourself, your, your motives, your plans, your agenda, your ideas. And sometimes in a good movie, you even have to suspend a great deal of disbelief, right? Like Star Wars. I love Star Wars, right? But come on, lightsabers. But hey, I love lightsabers. So you can only listen and watch. Uh, you can follow along to wherever the author or the director wishes to take you, right? That's how you experience a good movie or a good book. And that's why I love movies. I'm just along for the ride. You know, it's this moment in my life where I'm not having to pretend that I can control things. <laughs> I just check out and go, right? I mean, I like a good cerebral film as much as the next person, you know, the ones that make you think. But like, I kind of just want to hold back and be surprised at the end, <laughs> you know? Uh, but I don't, I don't generally want to think when I'm watching a movie. You know, if I know I'm going to when I go into it, it's one thing. But I don't generally want to. I just kind of want to check out. Just give me some pretty colors and some occasional explosions, like Avatar, and I'm good. I'm satisfied. So this series, the one that we're wrapping up today, it's about parables, right? Specifically, it's about the parables of Jesus that he told during his earthly ministry. And parables are, of course, a particular kind of story, aren't they? Can I confess something to you this morning? Confession's good for Christians, right? All right, real talk. I don't like parables. <laughs> I don't, you know? There's always something lurking beneath the surface, like it's going to come up and grab you. You know, I don't like that. Some point that's trying to be made, some challenge to to want to make you grow. You know, Ugh. I don't want to grow. These, these things mess with my head. You can't just check out and enjoy the explosions with a parable. You have to engage. See, I fancy myself a pretty smart guy, but Jesus, he's a lot smarter than I am. <laughs> uh, like, just tell me the answer, please. Stop making me think so much and just tell me what to do. Amen. So Pastor Devin mentioned Peter last week, right? And about how Peter, uh, he asked Jesus how many times he ought to forgive someone. He's like, so hey Jesus, seven's a good number, right? And Jesus is like, no, 70 times seven. And Peter goes, 77 times. That's a, that seems like a lot, but I, I can do that. I'll keep track. Thanks, Jesus. You know, see you, see you later. Uh... And Jesus is like, no, no, wait. And Peter's like, oh, my bad. 70 times 7 is 490. Man, that's a lot of times. But okay, I'll do what I can. So at this point, I can see Jesus face palming, right? And look up to say, let me tell you a story, right? And so he begins to tell him a parable. And that's the one that we learned about last week, I believe. But after the story, Peter, you know, he's, he's, I don't know, yeah, yeah. And Jesus finished and, I don't get it. I don't get it. Can you just give me a number, please? And Jesus, of course, is like, no, you're missing the point again, dude. And I feel like uh, Peter, of course, you see the picture of the Last Supper up here. Peter, of course, uh, he keeps on missing the point throughout the rest of Jesus' life, right? 
Uh, and near the end of Jesus' life, he tells his crew, Look, when I'm gone, the Holy Spirit will come and guide you. Right? The Holy Spirit will come and guide you. And Matthew, Thaddeus, and Simon are over there at the end of the table like, what is he even talking about? You know, and Peter's like, wait, what? Where are you going? The who? You know? <laughs> so, hopeless, right? I feel like Peter a lot of times when I'm reading the parables. Hopeless, clueless. I don't get it. You know, and so today... I wanted to look at an easy one. <laughs> the parable that makes sense. And everyone knows and understands this one, right? The parable of the Good Samaritan. It is easily the most popular and most recognizable parable in the Bible, right? You wouldn't know it. I approached my preparation for today as someone who genuinely wanted to learn. And honestly, the further I got into it, the more uncomfortable it made me. Uh, Jesus is still messing with my head. But before I jump in, I've got a, a question for you. What makes a good Christian? What makes a good Christian? What do you think? Well, me? Obedience. So how about this? Who is the best at following Jesus? People who like parables. Probably, that guy. <laughs> Pastor Devin loves parables. He loves them. You know, I just, I've always had a hard time connecting with Psalms, Proverbs, and parables. Probably because I'm a five. And, and uh, if you don't know what you are, you should find out. Uh... <laughs> So, who is the best at following Jesus? How do you even, how do you even measure that? Martyrs? Man, she might be onto something there. So this portion of Luke's gospel, it starts with a legal expert, right? A legal expert. In our day, we'd call them lawyers. Yeah? Lawyers. Standing up to test Jesus. It's important not to miss small details like this when you read the scriptures. So he says to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Do you think he really wanted an answer to that question? He's testing Jesus, right? He's an expert in Jewish law and Torah and he's testing Jesus. He wants to demonstrate his superiority, his his. Uh, his greater intellect, right? His more thorough mastery of Torah to this supposed teacher. Yeah? And he basically asks Jesus this, how can I know that God will accept me? In other words, what makes a good Jew? Sounds familiar, right? So anyway, Jesus clearly senses this guy's motive and asks the law expert, what is written in the law? How do you interpret it? Oh, snap. You tell me, smarty pants. That's what he says. You tell me. The lawyer responds like a good Jew by quoting Torah from Deuteronomy 6.5. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And also from Leviticus 19.18. 
and love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus says, you're right. Do this and you'll live. Good. But the lawyer pushes back, right? It says that he wanted to prove that he was right. So he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Ooh. I can almost hear Jesus snicker at this point when I'm reading the parable. As he begins telling him what's become known as the parable of the Good Samaritan. In which he tells a story about a man who was mugged and left for dead on the side of the road coming out of Jericho. Jericho. It's already juicy. It's already juicy. Did you know Jericho is one of the earliest known human settlements? One of the oldest. Dating all the way back to 9,000 BC. Isn't that crazy? That's a long time ago. So, what do you remember about Jericho from the Bible? Say what? Two gates, two doors. So, walls, yeah. So, it was the first settlement the Israelites attacked after crossing the Jordan. That's some wallage right there. <laughs> the first place they attacked after crossing the Jordan into Canaan. They were led by Joshua. The Israelites marched around Jericho. They blew their horns and shouted and the walls came tumbling down, right? The walls came tumbling down. Did you know that those walls at Jericho are the oldest known city wall discovered by archaeologists anywhere in the world ever? That's cool, right? You're like, yeah, whatever, I don't care. So anyway, about those walls. Why do people build walls? Everyone snickers. <laughs> I'm not talking about that wall. If that's where your brain goes, that's on you. But why do people build walls? Protection, right. Protection from what? From the wilds, from the weather, from the rising floodwaters, right? You remember the talk about the Tower of Babel, don't you? And protection from what else? Other people. Invasion. Protection from other people who don't look, think, or live like us. Who might want to come kill us. And take our stuff. Right? That's the gist. That's what a wall's for. So right away, this story starts with another story of division. Of animosity. And see, the lawyer, he's aware of all of this. He's a good Jew. He's a, law, a legal expert. He knows his Torah. He knows the scriptures. He believes the scriptures. In this time, in, in, in this time of Jesus, Jericho was actually considered an oasis city. It was warm and it had freshwater springs. Herod the Great even built his palace there. It was a place of status, wealth, and power. Homeless outcasts would often line the roads in and out of the town, right? Hoping to encounter wealthy traders and political elites. So it's a bit like saying there was a man traveling on the road out of Washington, D.C. Just to kind of make it real, right? This is the scene we find in Luke 18, actually, when Jesus heals the blind beggar. This is, this is where he's at on the road out of Jericho. 
So there's a man traveling from Jericho, and given what I've just told you, there's little reason to doubt that this man would have been at least well-to-do, right? And he's robbed, beaten, and left for dead. A priest shows up, crosses over to the other side of the road to avoid the half-dead man, and continues on his way. Later later on, a a Levite does the same. He arrives on the scene, sees the half-dead man, goes to the other side of the road, and continues on his way. So priests and Levites, these are Jews, right? Important Jews, right? Again, the legal expert knows this. He identifies with these people in the story. He is these people. But then a Samaritan shows up and saves the day. And Jesus asks, which one was a neighbor to the dying man? To which the lawyer must confess, the one who demonstrated mercy toward him. Did you catch what he did there? Did you notice? A lot of the time, we are really terrible at loving our neighbors. And because of this, a lot of the time, we are not the best at following Jesus. <laughs> There's this t-shirt I see advertised on Facebook frequently. I've got a picture of it for you up on the screen. If you can't make out what it says, which I wouldn't blame you, the words are tiny. Uh, it says, love thy foreign, homeless, prostitute, imprisoned, Disabled, gay, straight, transgender, blue collar, white collar, old, young, black, white, lonely, Jewish, Muslim, Christian, atheist, male, female, racist, addicted, rich, poor, liberal, conservative, different from you, fill in the blank, neighbor. And every time I see this, show up advertised on Facebook. I'm like, yeah, that, you got it. I'm sure most of us say something like that every time we see it, right? It's a wonderful idea. And something that we know deep down to be true, right? But I am not good at it. At least one of those on that list makes me squeamish. And if we're honest, the same is true for you. It's hard. I have a hard time expressing love to people that I think are causing harm to others. I often find it difficult to express love toward people I disagree with on big, important things. Especially when those disagreements are over things I think are bad for people and potentially cause irrevocable harm. It's hard for me. It's really hard for me. And see, I'm guessing about half of you are probably thinking, yeah, drain the swamp. And the other half of you are probably thinking, yeah, Trump's terrible. Right? Maybe it's not equally half and half, I don't know. But my own response is often very similar. Yeah, the people I disagree with are terrible. They are. Awful people. And y'all, that's not loving my neighbor. It's not at all. Each of these words represents a story. A particular way of thinking, doing, and being human. And see, we rally around these stories. 
We tell ourselves these stories that unify us and give us a common sense of purpose and direction. Why? It's about survival. These stories, it's how we make sure that we live and maybe they don't. Right? We've got oodles of these stories. Everyone does. We tell ourselves stories on the individual level about uh, helping us make sense of our surroundings and the place that we have in the pack, right? Think about it. What do you tell yourself about yourself and why? What stories do you believe about you? We've got other stories, a level up, like at the familial level, right? About how important it is to live in such a way that you are worthy of your last name. Your dad ever told you something like that before? Yeah. And maybe about like why you should never listen to Uncle Dave at Thanksgiving. <laughs> right? I don't have an Uncle Dave, but you shouldn't listen to him. And we've got other stories we're buying to at the local level about how our company is better than their company. The other company doesn't care about you, but we, we care about you. And our town is better than their town. Right? I mean, Van Buren is just the worst. <laughs> their roads are awful. I hate them. They have intersections that make zero sense. I pull up and I'm like, do I use my blinker here or not? There's two left turns, a right turn, and maybe that's straight. I don't know what I'm doing here. <laughs> I'm so glad Alma isn't that way. You know what I'm talking about, right? And then there are the stories that we believe at the macro level, the kinds of stories we believe about being from a particular state or region of the country. Don't believe me? What's this mean? I expected at least one of you to start doing it. Come on. It has been. It's hard. Well, that's a great point though, right? What do we do when that fails us? SEC, SEC, SEC. Right? Tell me you have not chanted SEC. You see, it's about feeling important. It's about feeling like you're a part of something awesome even when you're not. So fun fact. You know where the SEC chant got started? wrong. You think Alabama fans chant SEC? They don't need to. They're already awesome. SEC chant started with Arkansas Razorback fans in the 1990s. Because while we may be awful, we can broaden our circle to include the awesome people. And now we are awesome as well. Right? Alabama's not chanting SEC. Arkansas fans, Vanderbilt fans, they're ch chanting SEC. Hey, there is a point. It's just a way for us non-Alabamans to bask in Alabama's glory. And so whenever the SEC fails us, as it does once or twice per decade, there's always good old-fashioned Southern pride, y'all. Right? Yeah. And then, 
And there's those really pesky stories that we believe about cultural things, right? Stories about race and heritage and religion. I don't need to go into too much detail on these. You probably are quite familiar with them. But beyond that, we've got stories at the societal level, right? The stories we believe about nations and the people, the people who happen to, I don't know, set up shop on a particular plot of land on a floating rock through the sky. It's, yeah, stories about American exceptionalism, right? Stories about the American dream, about capitalism and work ethic and duty and integrity and rugged individualism. Yeah! And all the other traits that we aspire to that obviously no other people in the history of the world have ever aspired to. Because America the beautiful, land of the free, home of the brave. Right? I'm not picking on America here, y'all. Every nation does this. All of them. The American stories are just what we're familiar with. It's what we know. It's what we can relate to. But it's good to recognize these things for what they are. They're the stories that we believe, that we buy into, that define us, that shape us. And I am quite sure that someday, in the not-too-distant future, when humans are a legitimate space-faring civilization, when we've got a thriving colony on Mars and maybe a few colonies in the asteroid belt, those of us back home on Earth will be, we'll have stories about how the Martians and the Belters are inferior. Right? Homeworld, baby. Gravity rocks. Yeah? But, now, let's stop and reflect. What do all of these stories have in common? Everything from the individual level all the way up to the planet-wide mythos we use to define our identity. It's always about survival. Always. It's always about recognizing who is in and who is out. Who is us, who is not us, who is safe, who is not safe, who is good and who is bad, who is right and who is wrong. These stories are our walls of Jericho. They are a safeguard against all the things, big and small, that may want to kill us and take our stuff. Right? Arkansas fans chant SEC as a way of broadening their circle. We're still superior to everyone outside the circle. These stories are a protective bubble we use to shield ourselves from the harsh reality that at the end of the day, I'm not really sure that anyone really cares about me other than me. And maybe if I can attach myself to this group or that group, maybe then I'll feel safe. Right? Stories. They are powerful, aren't they? They can shape us and define us. They can insulate us. Stories are an invitation to be something beyond yourself. Join the group. Do the thing. Be one of us. Don't be one of them. And it's why humans have been telling stories since before we even had words. And this is why Jesus tells stories. This is why he uses parables. It's relatable. They can quench your thirst for meaning and belonging and survival. But the funny thing about most of 
the stories that Jesus tells, he doesn't seem to be too concerned with your survival, at least not in the sense that you typically think. Because when we think about survival, it's often at the expense of other people not surviving, right? Or at the very least, not interfering with our own survival. But Jesus says things like, you know, don't worry about what you'll eat or wear, right? Lose your life. Pick up your cross and follow me, which is just another way of saying, come and die. Love your neighbor. So again, who is my neighbor? <laughs> we talk in family, the family next door, my street, my town maybe, the state, my region. The people who look like me, people who believe like me, my nation, yeah, all of the above, everyone. That's why, to me, this story, the parable of the Good Samaritan, is so radical. With this simple parable, Jesus is inviting us to step out of the stories that we've already bought into about ourselves and our people to see that everyone, and especially those who aren't us, is our neighbor. To let go of the stories that we believe make us special, the stories that make us different, the stories that give us identity, and to instead receive his story. And see, we can never make his story our story. Because as we've learned, that is always the temptation. Because as soon as a story becomes our story, it becomes a way for us to once again identify ourselves as special, as different, as us and not them. Right? It's always his story. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, Jesus' story here, this parable, is so uncomfortable because it's not a story that we get to own. And that's hard. And I think that's entirely the point. Because you see, the priest and the Levite in this story, they weren't evil. They weren't they weren't just being meanies. They weren't consciously trying to do a bad thing. It's not a story about evil. It's not a story about good and evil. The priest isn't evil. The Levite isn't evil. But here's what you have to understand about the context in which this parable is given. It was against the law for them to touch him. The law expert Jesus is speaking to is not likely taken off guard by the lack of compassion shown to the half-dead man on the side of the road. Of course they passed him by. They did exactly what their law demanded of them. Hear me. They did exactly what the story they believed about themselves demanded of them. And here's a man half-dead on the side of the road. What do you do? Sorry, bro. Can't do it. But why? Why? Self-preservation, right? It's not acceptable. It's not what we do. It's not our way. What will people think of me? What if God rejects me? What if my family rejects me? It's about survival. It's always about survival. See, many generations before Jesus, God invited the Jews into a, a story, right? His story. 
He chose them to play a key role in his grand narrative of redemption. God's version of this story was always about everyone. But the Jews, over time, they made it their own. The law became the identifier for them. The law is what made them special and unique. This law is what made them us and not them. But you see these little reminders about God's original story all throughout the Old Testament, right? Like Job, who was blameless before God, before Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob even existed. Like Rahab, the prostitute of Jericho, who betrayed her people to assist the Jews in capturing the promised land. And Ruth, the Moabite woman, who was the great-grandmother of King David himself. The Jews understood themselves to be God's chosen, and those Samaritans, they were apostates. If you didn't already know the story, the history between the Jews and Samaritans, I'll just say this. They're both descended from the tribes of Israel, and they both think the other is wrong about the right way to worship God and be an Israelite. So much so that the Jews hated the Samaritans and thought of them as less than dogs. Did you notice in his answer to Jesus, the lawyer couldn't even answer the Samaritan? Instead, he said, the one who showed him mercy. He refused to acknowledge the Samaritan as good. You've got to know that Jesus knew this would be his response, right? So Jesus told this Jewish man a story about the stories he believes about himself to ensure his own survival. And he used the conflicting story of the hated Samaritan who ultimately ensured the survival of the other, the half-dead traveler on the side of the road. It's crazy. The stories that we believe will keep us safe, they very well may do just that. But they are not good enough. They are not big enough. Because they are ours. We can own them. They represent what we have decided we are. Now, don't misunderstand me, right? These stories aren't always bad. I love being a hog fan. <laughs> Even when it's not fun. They're usually not bad, in fact. It's not until we use them to destroy and divide that it becomes an issue. To see others as less than. When we use them to demonize our neighbor rather than loving them, right? And so Jesus invites us into his own story, one that we can never take ownership of. But it doesn't take much more than a glance at history to see that Christians for generations have done with God's story precisely what the Jews before us did. It's so tempting, isn't it? We are so afraid. And please understand, I'm not picking on Jews here either. Every group of people ever has done this. Every group of people that ever was believed that they were the best. That their story is the right story. Including us Jesus followers. Even up to today. We who've been given a new story, his story, we've attempted to make it our own. And throughout our history, we have used it against those we fear. To give us a sense of safety for survival 
It's always about survival. I often think that Peter, with his go-getter attitude and cluelessness during the life of Jesus, he's like a living parable of the church. And like Peter, we so often miss the point, right? It's not about us. It's not about our story. It's Jesus' story. And I believe that Jesus is so overjoyed to have each and every one of us in his story. Because his story is the only one that will save the world. And that includes our neighbors, right? And if we're going to play our part in this grand drama, we're going to have to give up control like we're in the movies. We have to let go of the stories we believe about ourselves that separate us from not us. Or we run the risk of becoming so preoccupied with our own survival that we avoid our half-dead neighbor on the side of the road. Because the real danger for us is this. The answer to the question, who is the best at following Jesus, is simply the one who loves his neighbor. <laughs>